If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Empire Podcast listeners. Anita here. Look, this episode is going to be one perhaps if you're of a delicate disposition or you've got small children or even slightly bigger children who don't like gory story. You may not want to listen to it with them. Anyway, just a friendly warning on with the show. I see seven sky blue pillars rise out of the bare fields against the delicate heather-coloured mountains. Down each, the dawn casts a highlight of pale gold. In their midst shines a blue melon dome with the top bitten off. On closer view, every tile, every flower, every petal of mosaic contributes to its genius, to the whole. Even in ruin, such architecture tells of a golden age. Has history forgotten it? Strolling up the road towards the minarets, I feel as one might feel who has lighted on the lost books of Livy or an unknown Botticelli. These Oriental Medici were an extraordinary race. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. So this is the wonderful passage in The Road to Oxiana, which many people think is the greatest of all the pre-war travel books by Robert Barron. And the whole of The Road to Oxiana is a progress towards this point where he crosses the Persian frontier and comes to Herat, somewhere which had basically been closed off to the British, certainly a, a casual British travellers until that time. And what Byron is seeing is a, one of the great masterpieces of Persian architecture, which has never been studied. 1933, I think he's there, has never been put into the illustrated books of the world. And he realises as he walks across the fields to these extraordinary minarets that he is discovering one of the great moments of civilization 
of our race. Yeah, and he and 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 that certainly comes across from from the writing. You know, just the sheer wonder of it, the majesty of it, the surprise of it. But these are the works, the whispers of the Timurid dynasty, an extraordinary dynasty that ruled much of Persia, Afghanistan, Central Asia. And I think what Byron was so surprised at was that traditionally Timur was known in Britain. It wasn't like he's an unknown quantity. Look, I mean, Tamerlane, thanks to Marlowe, <laughs> Tamerlane the Great. Exactly. The Scourge of God, he's called. It's one of the great sort of horror plays of the Elizabethan stage. But it is there throughout European culture. Handel wrote an opera about it. So mm. did Vivaldi. So did Scarlatti. So there was a point in sort of the 18th century when you had to try quite hard to avoid having Timur pop up. And in all these various media, he's famous as one of the great sort of brutes of history. He burns down cities. He massacres populations. He puts the Ottoman emperor in a cage, which is where we last met him uh, on this podcast series, when we were just talking about the, the run-up to the, the fall of Constantinople last year. Right. But the extraordinary twist in the story is that Timur, who, who really is, you know, very nearly as bad as, as he's traditionally meant to be, he really is one of the great sort of mass murderers and conquerors and enslavers and burner downers and destroyers of history. But what's extraordinary is that his grandchildren are like the Medici. They inspire extraordinary architecture, extraordinary painting, and produce in this unlikely venue of Afghanistan, what's now Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Persia, one of the great moments of, of human painting and the arts. And, mm. and to go there even today, I mean, I've been to Herat and Samarkand, even today it's very exciting to find these extraordinary masterworks in somewhere that, you know, coming from Europe feels very, very remote. We ought to really clarify, because I think most people are thinking, hang on, why are you putting him in Persia? Because the assumption is that this is a great part of Mongol history, uh, Tamerlane, uh, uh, Timur. Why in Persia? Because Timur, although he had Mongol blood through his wife, and so married into the Mongol dynasty, was himself a Turk resident in the old heartlands of Persia. Today, again, this is something we've been talking about throughout this Persian series, that today we think of Iran on the map as, as being sort of contained by Afghanistan to the north. But in Persianate history, Persia extends right through Afghanistan to Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Kazakhstan even. Mm. Uh, and all these areas were Persian-speaking, were places where the great Persian epics last time we were talking about Ferdowsi, and it's where Ferdowsi writes about and where these, where these great Persian epics are set. So this is historic Persia, even though today Samarkand, I suppose, is modern Uzbekistan, as is Shari Sabz, the other capital of, uh, of Timur, and Herat is in Afghanistan. None of them are in modern Persia, but they are the venue of one of the great renaissances of Persian art and history. I'm going to make a very Anita comment now, and you're going to, I know you are going to laugh at me, but what did he look like? Well, I, I found one, I found one. <laughs> what did he look Yes, that's all very well. That's all very well, William Darrow. But what did he look like? I found one description that said he had short, fair hair like a leopard. What else do we know about what he looked like? Because that doesn't sound like this great sort of either Persian hero or Mongol hero. Well, no, he's not Fabio from Macaz, definitely not. He is, uh, well, I'll read the description of Archbishop John of Sultania. Oh, yes, please. We want a more comprehensive picture than just hairdo. So tell, tell us more. So the Archbishop says he is of middling build, 
and has the Tartar countenance and a white beard a l'Espagnol. In other words, this little short goatee. Pointy and... Pointy goatee. Yeah, coiffured, yeah. Broad brow, headstrong and vigorous, possessing broad shoulders and a loud voice. But despite being this sort of stocky, short Mongol with a limp, he had obviously a magnetic personality. And one of the great sort of moments that we can focus in in his life is when he's outside Damascus and he meets the great genius of his day, Ibn Khaldun, who's from originally Algeria or certainly North Africa, and who meets him outside Damascus to plead with Timur unsuccessfully to spare Damascus, which is one of the great sort of cities of the Middle East and, and, and of Islam. And Ibn Khaldun is oddly impressed by him, although Timur then goes on to kill everybody almost in Damascus, except the falconers, who he's very excited by and who he sends <laughs> back to Samarkand for his hunting. Ibn Khaldun says that he had this extraordinary presence, was highly intelligent and very observant. So Ibn Khaldun is quite impressed by him, although Ibn Khaldun is, you know, is a kind of polymath and a genius, and although yeah. Timur is not showing himself at his best in Damascus, but massacring half the city. No, being a slightly murdering, pillaging fellow. But where, where did that intelligence come from? Because I, I don't think we've really done enough to put his origin story front and centre. Okay, so let me let me sketch as what, what's going on in Central Asia or in Asia at this point. When our last podcast ended, we were in the early 10th, 11th centuries with Mahmud of Ghazni about to attack India and failing to pay Ferdowsi the gold coins that he knew he was worth. And, and, and only belatedly does he send it to, only to discover that uh, the Ferdowsi is dead. He's dead. We booed and hissed at him with, exactly. with a great deal of gusto. Yeah. So since then, Central Asia witnessed a great revival of the arts, of sciences. People like Al-Biruni write great works in Central Asia. But this whole world receives a sort of catastrophic uh, knock in the 13th century with the arrival of the Mongols. And, and Genghis Khan rides right through Eurasia, burning, looting, and pillaging. And in the aftermath of that, everything, all the pieces on the board are rearranged. Baghdad has been burnt down. The Mongols have reached as far as the Mediterranean. They've penetrated into Russia. And you see slowly over the course of the 13th and 14th century, this enormous Mongol megastate, which extends literally from the Mediterranean to the China Sea, with no boundaries in between, which allows Marco Polo to travel with just one passport from Jerusalem all the way to Xanadu, Kublai mm. Khan's great palace. But that breaks down in the course of the 13th and 14th century. And it looks as if the days of the Mongols are over. There's a great defeat, I think, in 1260 near Gaza, funnily enough, at the Battle of Ain Jalut, when the Egyptian Mamluks come up and massively defeat the Mongols. It looks like the Mongols are over. And then Timur comes, and Timur changes everything. So he sort of tap dances on the on the graves of, of the Mongols. That's 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 interesting. Then just the just I mean we touched on it and we ought to do a whole series on the Mongols. I think they're fascinating. And, and you know, Genghis Khan is such an enormous figure. I would love that. Let's do it. 
And a lot of interesting books have been written about him lately, which means there's lots of interesting things to say. Well, we should, we should yeah. do it. I'm, I'm writing it on our list. But the reason for the collapse of the Mongol Empire was what? Is it the same old story that we come across all the time here at the Empire Podcast, that it's overextension, overambition, and then just actually lack of money? What, I mean, what happened? Do we know why the Mongols suddenly imploded? So it's a problem with succession. It, initially, it's just one ruler, Genghis Khan, and then it splits between his sons and you get what's called the Ilkhanid Mongols out of Sultania in Iran and various other smaller four, it's first of all four Mongol kingdoms. And then it sort of disintegrates. There's the Golden Horde in the Crimea. There's uh, Kublai Khan, uh, who's, who's, who's the, 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 big, the big boss uh, the Primus in Tapara is he's in, he's in Xanadu uh, and runs the whole of China right. and is planning a seaborne invasion of Japan that goes badly wrong and gets caught in a storm. But Timur is on the edge of all this. Timur is not himself a Mongol. He's a Barless Turk. And though he marries into the Mongol royal family and calls himself the son-in-law, Gurgen, uh, he's not actually a, a Mongol himself. Oh, that's interesting. So he needs to claim the lineage because, again, that gives you the pedestal. We've seen that numerous occasions before. But there was also the small matter of the Black Death. I mean, that didn't help, did it, with the Mongol Empire? So this is a very important point, and you're, you're quite right to bring this up. So it does affect the, the Mongols. The Mongols, obviously, are, are, are some of the people who it affects first, but it affects them less than it affects the settled city dwellers of Persia and the Levant. And you have massive deaths. It's, in some places, it's two-thirds of the population. In other places, it's one-third, which is what it is also in Europe uh, when it gets there on a Genoese ship at the beginning of this period. And the wipeout of some of these great Persian cities leaves a power void, which Timur plans to fill. Mm. And Timur himself, we said he's from a humble background. He starts off literally as a brigand, according to his enemies, stealing sheep. He's literally a sheep stealer. <laughs> oh, it's a Robert Clive story. God, these, these aren't they just sort of little echoes of people who rise to the, the foremost positions of power where they start from? That's interesting. Exactly that. Uh, they're always expelled from school or end up yeah. in prison young or whatever it is. They're not the ones getting A stars, are they, <laughs> generally speaking? No, certainly not. And uh, Timur allegedly gets his limp, which is a feature uh, very much of his life. He can't, for example, easily get onto a horse. Uh, which is the thing that you know a good Mongol leader is meant to do effortlessly. Genghis Khan could swing onto his stallion and lead his troops in battle and, and lead the horse archers. But Timur needs a lot of help getting onto a horse. And towards the end of his life, he's actually carried around in a litter suspended between four asses, which is rather like oh. Cleopatra's asses baths, milk and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound too glorious. But just on his, again, this really sort of wonderful mosaic you've given us of his background, does he consider himself, I know he claims Genghis Khan's lineage, what would he call himself if you met Timur down the pub? <laughs> what would, <laughs> would he say, you know, I am, I am a Persian, I am a, a Mongol, what would he call himself? Well, he actually he actually formally takes the title of son-in-law Gurgen um, because he's 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 proud of his posh wife, but he's aware that he himself is not posh. Okay, all right, but he says posh wife, but but he would he would deem himself to be a, a Mongol, even though actually, as you're pointing out, he is very much in this Persian story. Well, to complicate matters, I think he though he spoke good Persian and wrote mm. a little Persian. He wasn't particularly literate. He could read, but slowly and with effort. But actually, ethnically, he is personally a Turk. 
just to complicate matters again. So he's neither just, Mongol nor Persian. I'm, asking, I'm now asking a really existential. Why are we here? Why are we? Why are he, we here? In the, okay, it will become clear. It will become very clear because this is a Persian story. Even though this is quite an unlikely character, uh, although not as we, we said before, you know, it was always the ruffians who sort of do very well in, in empires. He does have some early military success. Tell me about you know what age he is when he starts to do his conquering. Well, I mean, by some of the standards of some of the, the world conquerors that we've dealt with, like Alexander, you know, who's, who kicks off in his teens with all his mates from the gym. The embryo Alexander. He's not <laughs> yeah. He's not a benchmark you want no. to use, frankly. Yeah. Timur doesn't have that. And it takes nine battles over 18 years for him to first conquer his local metropolis of Samarkand. But once he captures Samarkand and gets control of what's now Uzbekistan, which is very fertile and, and, and very central territory at this point. This is the center of the world. Then he gets going and he erupts out into Persia, uh, which, as we say, is just recovering from a very, very bad bout of the Black Death. I know you have some beautiful poetry from Hafez, who was alive at this time and, and uh, describes the kind of, well, what it was like to be visited by Timur. Can you, can you read those out for us? So the, the Persians in particular remember Genghis Khan's arrival is something of complete horror. And for a hundred years, the Persians were under the Mongol foot. And by you know, this period, by the period that uh, Timur is, is capturing Samarkand, everyone thinks that this is this period or hopes that this period is over, that this, this terrible cataclysm is, is now entered history, but not. And when Timur bursts out and attacks Persia, Hafez, who's living in the south near Shiraz, writes, Again, the times are out of joint. The wheel of fortune is a marvellous thing. What next proud head to the lowly dust will it bring? The night is pregnant. What will the dawn bring to birth? Tumult and battle rage in the plains. Bring blood-red wine and fill the cup again. Again, beautiful. Um, and we should not throw out um, names of people and just assume people know who they are. But Hafez is a huge literary figure and, and is known in, in the East very, very well. When you go to Persepolis as a tourist uh, and then go to Shiraz next door to it, the main tourist site in Shiraz is the tomb of Hafez. And it's still a place that is filled with poets and students touching Hafez's grave as if it's a sacred relic. And, and this is a huge thing for Persians. The Persians love their poets. And you go there and these wonderful chaikanas, these tea houses around the outside of, of the tomb garden, and everyone's sitting there reading Hafez to each other. And uh, it, it's one of the great places of, of Persian culture. But Hafez lives to see this terrible return of, of the nightmare of the of these great conquests. And it's a recurring nightmare because everywhere Timur goes, he leaves this trail of devastation, destruction and blood. He's, he, that's just his, his signature. And what's clear is that he deliberately terrifies people. He wants people just to, just to surrender, not fight. He doesn't want to have to go through endless battles. So whenever he is resisted, when a city does not hand its keys to him and offer him tribute, he just kills hundreds of thousands of people. Having burst his way through Persia and then attacked 
Russia and the, the Mongols there and the Crimea, the Golden Horde, an invasion which rather improbably comes to a, a close, according to Russ sources, because of, and I quote, a nocturnal vision of the Virgin Mary. Who, who has the vision? He does. He has, allegedly, according to the Russian sources. Right. <laughs> who says, can you stop doing this, please? <laughs> and he says, okay, all right then. But he really gets into form when he arrives in Delhi. And in 1398, he heads down to this very rich Delhi Sultanate, which had not been conquered by the Mongols. There was a famous moment in the Mongol invasions. We'll deal with this uh, if we do do a, a Mongol series. There's a wonderful scene that I'm, I'm amazed has never been filmed when the Mongols tried to take the great Delhi fortress of Tuklakabad, which is still there today on the, on, on the plains outside Delhi. And Tuklakabad is built with an incredible series of hydraulic engineering locks that that like a like a canal can be opened and, and shut and they just let the sluices out and so the mongol army with all their thousands of, of horses with horse archers which has swept around the rest of the world is drowned by uh, the delhi sultans and they never and they never capture it so he timur does what genghis couldn't do i mean that's exactly a that. massive plume in his hat isn't it and he he very much sees this as the challenge that uh, that genghis didn't manage to take delhi but he did. And he writes, he writes autobiography and he writes about the terror of the elephants, which uh, have terrified the Mongols. They know that their tiny little horses are not going to be able to take this on. By the way, just an aside, reminds me of that moment in Lord of the Rings when the hobbits first set eyes on an elephant. They think it's a mythical creature that doesn't exist. And then they, they finally see them. Well, I mean, that trivializes the real life. I just, just reminded me. Uh, this is what Timur in, in 1398-ish uh, has to say about elephants. It had been constantly dinned into the ears of my soldiers that the chief reliance of the armies of Hindustan was on their mighty elephants, which, completely encased in armour, marched into battle in front of their forces, that arrows and swords were of no use against them, that in height and bulk they were like small mountains, while their strength was such that at a given signal they could tear up great trees and knock down strongly built walls, and that in the battlefield they could take up a horse and his rider with their trunks and hurl them into the air. Is that brilliant? I'd be worried too, frankly. I know. You can see the worry. So how does he deal with it? He talks about how he deals with it. So he does two things. He, first of all, brilliantly, he sets, I mean, he wouldn't get any marks in the RSPCA, but he sends, he, he loads the camel, the, the baggage camels of his army with haystacks and then drives them forward and lights the haystacks. So these camels oh. feeling themselves burning fire. run faster and faster towards the elephants which are coming towards them and, and the one thing that, that drives elephants crazy is fire so these sort of line of haystacks charging at the elephants drives the elephants back on their own troops they panic and they crush the Delhi armies mm. and then he says this wonderful description goes on i gave orders to my brave fellows who were in attendance upon me that they cut their way to the sides of the amirs who were fighting on the forefront of battle they brought the elephant drivers to the ground with their arrows and killed them, after which they attacked and wounded the elephants with their swords. The soldiers of Sultan Mahmud and Malu Khan, who are the two Delhi generals, showed no lack of courage and bore themselves manfully in the fight, but they could not withstand the successive onslaughts of my soldiers. Seeing their plight and that of their soldiers and elephants around them, their courage fell and they took to flight. 
Mm. And there's then this terrible sack of Delhi, which is, is remembered in, in Delhi's history as one of the kind of the, the worst moments. Well, can I read a little bit about what that felt like? The flames of strifeless lighted spread through the entire city from Janapanna and Siri to Old Delhi, consuming all they reached. The savage Turks fell to killing and plundering while the Hindus set fire to their houses with their own hands, burned their wives and children in them and rushed into the fight and were killed. The Hindus and infidels of the city showed much alacrity in the boldness of their fighting. I just, I just, how many people did he have with him? I mean, to, to have this kind of unstoppable wave of destruction, to take Delhi too. The figures are disputed, but it's, it is, you know, an unstoppable force of sort of quarter of a million by this stage. He's now in his, in his uh, stride, so to speak. And he's got these enormous armies that are completely unstoppable, all on horseback, horse archers. And, in his own account that we've just been reading there, he sets himself up very much as the champion of Islam, killing yeah. infidels. But in fact, he's twisting the facts because Delhi is already, uh, at least in government, a Muslim city. It's ruled by Farashah Tukluk. When you go to Delhi today, there is all these Tukluk uh, citadels. There's Tuklakabad. And then there's the area of Housecast, which today is rather sort of trendy uh, restaurant area. Oh, it's very shishi, very boutique you can find a nice boutique shoe in house cars, yeah. And a very nice momos and good Tibetan restaurants and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, that area is is burnt to the ground. There's a big university there, Timor sacks it. He goes on what one of the historians describes as sort of plundering tourism, saying, I have that and I like that. And oh, let's find the builders who built that because I could do with one of those in Samarkand. So he mm. strips Delhi of many of its craftsmen. And according to some accounts, this is disputed and, and it may well not be true, but according to some accounts, it is the weeping of the Hindus taken by Timur back to Samarkand, which is the derivation of the Hindu Kush mountains, the tears of the Hindus. Oh, wow. I mean, I I want that to be true. I always thought it was true. Apparently it isn't, but it's a, oh, it it's, it's oh, a story that's told at least, even if it isn't true. It's poetic and tragic, but just numbers we, we can estimate. I mean, it's a, around 100,000 people in Delhi that he kills outright. Is, is that right? And yes. And as I say, he bills this as killing infidels, but it, the army and, and, and the city is certainly very significantly Muslim. Uh, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a Hindu ruled city. But anyway, this whole idea of being a champion of Islam falls apart because the next thing he does is invade Anatolia. And this is now completely Muslim. We are going to take a break there. So join us after the break where we find out how Timur deals with Anatolia and the Levant. Join us then. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back. And just before the break, we were talking about the devastation that had been rained upon the people of Delhi, as William pointed out, you know, largely a Muslim population. 
by Timur, a man who said he was cleansing the land of infidels and was, what did you call it? Shopping, pillaging? What was it? There was a very neat phrase you used. What was it? Pillaging tourism. Pillaging tourism. <laughs> that's right. So you did sort of hint that his next target was going to be Anatolia. Tell us how that started. And and we have sources, don't we? We have Armenian historians who tell us what this was like. That's right. We got a, a wonderful account by the Armenian historian Thomas of Metsof, who I think is based in Ani, which is uh, the great Armenian capital today on the, bo- on the boundaries of Turkey and Armenia, most of it just inside modern Turkey. And having crossed into what's now Ottoman territory, the army of Timur heads for the great university town of Sivas, which was famous as one of the great centers of medicine. And there's a wonderful madrasa when you go there called the Shafaya Madrasa, which was famous for curing psychological illnesses. And people would take people from across the whole region to go to Sivas for for a cure. But you didn't do that when Timur was on the way. No. And can I just uh, say, here follows, I mean, it is an utterly devastating part of history here. So if you've got small children in the car, you might want to just turn down the volume for the next two minutes or so, because this does involve children, William, doesn't it? I've given a sufficient warning now. So can we tell this story, which is just so awful? It's awful. So the people of Sivas, having heard what's happened to the people of Delhi, and knowing that Timur quite liked his reputation as a champion of Islam and was keen on this, they have the clever idea of sending the children of the city out wearing white dresses. The Muslim children. Muslim children in white, holding each one of them a copy of the Quran and saying, we want peace. Just don't. This is, this is, we are yours. You, this yeah. is, we are of the same prophet. And does that make a jot of difference, William? Nope. Timur sends in the heavy cavalry and tramples them underfoot. Trampling children to death. He's a bastard, William. He then besieges the city, mines the wall, and storms the breaches. And at this point, the people in the city surrender and say, okay, promise us you won't kill us. And he says, I promise I will not shed a drop of your blood. And having made that promise, he then orders his generals to take the defenders in groups of a thousand. And he digs special pits. And he trusses them up in such a way that the defenders have their heads between their thighs and he then shoves them into the pits and buries them alive, but does not shed their blood. Well, what a, what a stand-up guy he is keeping to his promise. He does something else before that. Can, I mean, can I just add to the, Go God, it. this yeah. man is a bastard. First, though, he requires 9,000 virgins of both sexes to be carried off to the imperial harem. I mean, he's so ghastly. And then what does he leave behind in Sivas? Is there anything left after he's finished this? No, it's just burnt and left empty. And when you go to the Shifaya Madrasa and the Gok Madrasa today, these two wonderful Seljuk university buildings, they were the kind of you know, the uh, the great Ormond Street of, of 13th century and 14th mm. century Anatolia. They are destroyed by Timur and never recover. Has anyone else excavated these mass graves or, or anything like to your knowledge? I mean, there must have been, I suppose. I know that the madrasas have been restored and uh, and and are now very sort of fancily displayed. Since my first visit, I went, I suppose, in the in the mid eighties for the first time to see Vast, and I've heard that now it, they've turned this whole area into a sort of historic park at the bottom of the hill. Mm. But Timur, anyway, doesn't stop at Sivas. He goes on in similar forms, destroys Aleppo, destroys Baghdad's, only sheikhs and dervishes, he say, are exempt from the slaughter. 
And this is where he gets the idea of building towers of skulls. He, he calls them minarets because he's a good Muslim, he says. And he builds minarets um, of heads facing neatly outwards with the captured and beheaded defenders. And then one of Timur's last victories was at Izmir on the Aegean coast of Turkey. And we last were in Izmir with Giles Milton at the burning of Smyrna at the end of the Ottoman period. But at this period, it's still a fortress in the hands of the crusading knights of Spitalus. Now, what's the difference? Because that's really interesting. So those who don't know their knights, uh, <laughs> what's the difference between the Templars and their hospitalers? So they're two rival orders of military monks set up for the crusaders. The Templars are based in what the Crusaders thought was the temple, which is the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And the Hospitallers are based, I think, in the great hospital in Jerusalem. Yeah. And they're rivals, rather like the... People's Front of Judea and the Judean <laughs> People's Front kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> Monty Python territory. This is more, this is more um, the, the knights who say nay from, okay. uh, from the Holy Grail. But the yeah, so these guys are in Smyrna and... Timor again makes very short work of the uh, of their castle in Bodrum, and half the knights manage to escape on their galleys because they've got, of course, the I think it's the, is it the island of Rhodes is the big headquarters of, of the knights. They have these fantastic fortifications on Rhodes, and also on Kos, where I was last summer. There's there's Hospitaller. Anyway, Timor sees the knights Hospitallers fleeing in their galleys, and he says, half of "Right, them. yeah, yeah, half of them." He says, "Okay, take the ones that we've captured." Mm behead them and mm. catapult the heads into the galley. He's so Game of Thrones, isn't he? He just overdoes everything, doesn't he, this man? I, we've never seen that in Game of Thrones. We've never seen catapulted heads of Knights Templars. Our producer, Callum, is, is writing in The Orcs at Minas Tirith in Lord of the Rings 2. <laughs> Can I just say, this is why we, we all get on so well. We are such nerds. It's a remarkable thing that any of us have ever found anyone to love us. Because we really are just very weird. Because as soon as you read that, I was like, oh yeah, Yes. Great catapulting of head scenes. In <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yes, that happened. Okay, look, so that happens. There's another one, in, another postcard from a bloodbath that he can send home. His big ambition was to capture what was then the richest prize of them all, which is China. And in 1495, he plans a devastating assault on China, which is then, he calls the, the Chinese emperor, Fat Pig Khan. That's his name for him. And he's also Rude he, as well. He's busy getting all his troops ready. And that's the point at which he has a premature heart attack. <laughs> but he uh, dies of natural causes, William. What is the justice in this? He just uh, he just basically clutches his chest and collapses. Rather disappointingly, yeah, for, mm. the, for the end of the movie. But he does this in a Samarkand, which is now transformed, because for the previous 20 years, he's been taking masons and tile makers and craftsmen and carpenters from all the cities that he's destroyed and brought them to his two twin cities, Samarkand and Shari Sabs, the, the green city. And he's not just a, a sort of a megalomaniac in war. He's, he fancies himself as a bit of an architect. And he plans these enormous citadels with which he gets these captured artisans and these captured craftsmen to build. And they are 
you know, ridiculously massive. The the arches on one of his palaces in Shari Subs is 73 feet in span and can be seen 25 miles away. And the pylons that support them soared up to 164 feet, the equivalent of a 14-story building today. And this is in 1495. So he has this sort of uh, megalomania in, in terms of building. It's, it's gigantomania is what it is. It's like, you know, everything I can build is bigger than anything anyone else can build. Mm. And then he builds a mosque in Samarkand called the Bibi Kayam Mosque for his wife, which is two and a half times the size of an international football field. God, can you imagine being married to this fellow, though? <laughs> <laughs> she probably deserved it. <laughs> like something even bigger than that. But I think, you know, it's obviously quite magnificent. It's, uh, th- there's a, a, an envoy from the King of Spain who comes to visit at this point. And he describes the new Aksarai Palace near Samarkand. And he says, the gateway was beautifully adorned with very fine work in gold and blue tiles, while the principal reception room was panelled with gold and the ceiling was entirely of gold work. Even the famed craftsmen of Paris would not have been able to produce such fine workmanship, he says. But that's nothing in comparison to Samarkand itself and Timbal's court, which was decorated with gold trees with trunks as thick as a man's leg. And among the gold leaves were fruits, which on closer inspection turned out to be rubies, emeralds, turquoise stones, sapphires, along with large, perfectly round pearls. Mm. But again, this is all slightly sort of bling, and it's designed by Timur rather than the proper architect. So even in his own lifetime, these buildings start to collapse. And one by one, they come down. And when you go to Shari Shabs and Samarkand today, half of them are just sort of a single pylon reaching into the air with no arch and, uh, and no dome. And half of them you can't go into. Incidentally, the, the ones in Samarkand are very, very heavily restored by the Soviets. We were talking in The Great Game when episodes about the Soviet conquest of this area. And one of the things they do in the early 20th century is they send in these teams of restorers who, I think, under Stalin's watch, are sent to restore Samarkand to its full glory. And they just cover everything in gold and, and shininess. It's like a sort of secret policeman's bathroom. It's sort of a cover art gold. Well, I mean, it, it, to, to me, it sounds like he's sort of very much the nouveau riche of the imperial world, where, you know, coming into an enormous amount of wealth and, and not necessarily having the taste of it, he just throws bling without structure. But, I mean, we're going to, we're going to in the next episode, talk about those who follow him, who certainly do have you know, the taste of refinement. And, and this is what we talk about when we talk about the Persian Renaissance. Shall I just tell a little traveller's tale from, just to finish off this episode? Yes, I would love to. You've been to a lot of these places. I would love it. Yes, please. So a few years ago, I went to Samarkand. And while these enormous mosques, two and a half times the size of a football pitch, are all very well, they are not only sort of slightly bad taste in that they're so overly gilt. They're also badly over-restored by Stalin's restorers. And I heard about one surviving early Timurid mosque, which has never been fiddled with, never restored, and which is in perfect condition. And this is about four or five hours drive from Samarkand in a place called Langa Otta. And maybe I just finished today by, by reading about going to see this wonderful early Timurid mosque and Sufi shrine. And what was fascinating was that the Sufis had come back. They'd, of course, been 
banned from using the the shrine during the the Soviet period. They'd had to pray on mountaintops. And I talked to this guy, Abul Hussan, who was the Sufi in charge of this beautiful, beautiful, perfect Timurid mosque with immaculate, gorgeous tile work. And he said, uh, more and more people now come to pray here. He said, pilgrims from all over, Uzbeks, Afghans, Turks, Hindustanis, Arabs, even Europeans, the whole world comes, especially on a Thursday, the holy day for the Sufis. And he said, the saint knows every time we step inside this building. He knows what we wish for, and he tells God all the things we wish. 360 Sufis are buried near here, and it has very strong barakat, very strong spiritual power. Many people are cured of illness, especially of mental illnesses. Barren women become pregnant. Fevers of the sick disappear. The poor find sustenance. And I asked him, how did the, how did the shrine escape the Soviets? And he said, it didn't. The Soviets completely closed this place down. During the Soviet time, we prayed on the mountaintops and read the Quran, but in secret. It was illegal to have a Quran. If they found one, they put you in jail. Keeping the memory of the saint alive, that is now my life. And I said, how do you do that? He said, we sing his poems. His words are remembered wherever we pray here. We sing, and only after that can my heart find rest. Would you like to hear? And I said, I would. So Abul Sang began to sing, and he did so with all his heart filling the shrine chamber with a beautifully strong tonic descant of minor chords, rising to a climax and falling gently away again. He fell quiet when he had done so, his hand cups, his eyes closed, lost in prayer. Outside you could hear the birds chattering amid the roses and the mulberry and almond blossom. Who comes here prays to Allah, he said eventually, with their wishes always fulfilled. You pray to the saint and he tells the Lord, God sees everything. The Soviets are come and gone, but here, at last, I felt I'd touched on something vital and undamaged that was still strong, something that Timur would have recognized and loved. And as we were leaving, Abu Hassan said, where I come from? And I said, I come from Delhi. And his face lit up, and he quoted some Persian texts by the now obscure here poet Bedil. He died in Delhi, he said. Do you know his work? Do they still tend his tomb? Oh, you write good. You should write good books. That's that's really beautiful. No, it's lovely. Look, I think this is quite a tantalizing place to, to leave today's podcast. Join us next week to hear about the extraordinary renaissance of Persian culture under the Oriental Medicis. Till then, goodbye from me, Anita Anand. And goodbye from me, William Dorimple. <laughs>